0: Thank you, everybody, for joining us on another episode of Car Stories Podcast at the Peterson Automotive Museum. My name is Patrick with my co-host, Daniel Valdez. Say hi, Daniel. How's it going? Today, we have a very important guest. He goes by the name of Daniel Arsham because, in fact, that is his name. He's the creative director for the Cleveland Cavaliers, an incredible visionary artist, and this man has touched just about any medium you can think of. Daniel Arsham, please introduce yourself.
1: Hello, everyone. Happy to be here at the
0: Peterson. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you have a new exhibition here at the museum. You brought four cars and a few pieces of yours. Tell us a little bit about those.
1: Yeah, so I started talking about this show probably about a year ago with Jeff Swart, the kind of legendary photographer of many uh, advertisements. Um, I've had advertisements on my walls since I was you know, a teenager, and um, he shot many of those campaigns. So I became friends with him, and he was advising the museum on different new projects that might be interesting to bring. And you know, I think um, all of us have been fascinated, obviously, with automotive culture. That Peterson has hundreds of cars on uh, exhibit, um, but he thought it might be introduced or interesting to introduce some of these cars that were sculptural, that were not actually functional vehicles. So I brought four cars. One of them is actually a drivable car. It's kind of a mixture of a sculpture and a car um a 1961 um GT California uh Ferrari um which was famously used in Ferris Bueller's Day Off when they drove it backwards outside of the uh iconic. The garage
0: iconic you camera really snapped to that one
1: yeah exactly um a um uh, 1968 Mustang Fastback, which was used in uh, the movie Bullet with Steve McQueen. Another um, very famous car scene where they're kind of jumping, you know, over the hills in San Francisco. I've often tried to use vehicles for these sculptural works that are both uh, automotive, you know, part of automotive history, um, but also tied into some other kind of narrative. So, cinema cars um, has been a big thing for me. Um, so there's a, there's a quarter scale version of a um, DMC DeLorean made in bronze. And then the other two vehicles in the show, uh, one of them is a 1980 uh, 911 SC, uh, which has been recast in or remade in blue calcite crystal. So it appears as if it's in this kind of state of decay, erosion, um, looks like something we might find on a future archeological site. Um, And the last car is a 1955 um, 356 Speedster, which very famous car in sort of Porsche uh, universe. It was a car that I bought uh, about four or five years ago. It had been restored. Um, I brought it to John Wilhoyt here in Southern California to start a project on it. I didn't know exactly what it would be. So we stripped all the paint off, um, brought it back down to the bare metal. And I said to him, you know what if i just leave it like this you know with the bare metal and he said oh everyone says that when they come in here when you know <laughs> when, when we get it down to bare metal like oh it's so beautiful you see all the markings from the factory um in that era you know there was so much less automation that oh, yeah. there was a lot of adjustment that had to be made by hand actually in the factory and so i did what everyone said they would like to do um but never did which was to leave the car um, in its bare metal state, but bring it back up to totally functional vehicle. Uh, once I had this idea about kind of going with this sort of patination, um, I've been a huge fan of um, Japanese culture and their attention to um, kintsugi, which is a, a, a kind of design where things that are broken are repaired um, with, with a, a metal filler. Um, and, and Japanese fabric. So the interior of the car has been uh, redone with um, a technique called boro, which is a denim that's been stitched back together, mm. uh, and sashiko, which is a, uh, a denim that has been hand-stitched with this perfect um, line of white thread. Um, car is totally functional, drivable. Um, John rebuilt the engine just as it had been, um, painted it all gray, so it has this very sort of reductive quality and threw it on the dyno it makes um 65 horsepower not bad for (laughs) a car of
0: that era yeah nice job yeah definitely so you just talk about cars like that you already own i've seen that you own a few other pretty sweet machines do
1: you care to elaborate on that yeah you know i was obviously a fan of porsche and um, when i was in high school the only thing that i really wanted was a 930 turbo um, but couldn't afford that in the era so I ended up going with a 1989 Saab 900 Turbo, white, um, gray interior. Um, that car was amazing. I wish I still had it, but once I got to the point that I could actually um, afford to, to uh, buy a Porsche, I, I did buy a 930 Turbo. So that was the first vehicle I added to what became this kind of larger fleet. And the project um, that I've been trying to accomplish was to have one from every decade. Um, since the the founding of the company, but stopping um, at air-cooled. So the latest car that that I have is a 1998 um, 993 um, C2. So I've got that, I've got um, a couple of other like historically significant um, Porsche vehicles. One of them is 1973 uh, RS 2.7, which, you know, that car, um, it kind of had this interesting history because they weren't really appreciated. Um, I think maybe in the, when they came out, certainly they were, but in the 80s and 90s, they, um, I don't know, you probably could have picked one up for, well, a lot less than what they, yeah. they are Ima- now.
0: Imagine picking up a 2.7 RS for 1,800 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Sheets.
1: Exactly. So that car had been purchased. Um, it was originally uh, Signal Yellow. was painted in the white and blue livery um, and then raced on these circuits in Europe um, in the early 2000s um, it was purchased by uh, a German guy uh, in 2007 and then sent back to Porsche so they rebuilt the engine and they restored it back uh, exactly as it as it had been built um, originally and that's effectively the state that it's in each of the projects I've done something to them um, but often things that I could put back right so I'm not destroying the original heritage of of the vehicle. So that car, um, I swapped out the seats. um, I had custom uh, wheels made. I slightly altered the livery, which was done in a vinyl on the exterior of the car. Um, You know, kind of created my take on that um, that era. What does the Porsche brand speak to you? Why Porsche? I think for me, one of the interesting things, and I'm often looking for this um, in my own work, is... A object that contains um, the kind of zeitgeist of an era, right? So when we think about other design objects that sort of encapsulate this, we could think of like a telephone, for instance, right? It started out, it has a it has a design, but it also has a functional purpose. Um, that phone design evolves through, you know, the 1920s and 30s, and we can kind of see the era, the materials of the era, in it. Um, all the way through today to like a cell phone um, and the nine eleven design is one of the few, maybe one of the only uh, vehicle designs that has gone through you know since nineteen sixty five all these different variants, but contains the original sort of design ethos right We're, we see it morphing through all these periods and um, you know one of the things I love about getting in you know A nine eleven from the late sixties or the eighties, like you, it's like stepping into a time machine. You know, the materials, the smell of the vehicle is different. Um, It kind of encapsulates that era. And uh, as a sculptor, those are the sorts of things that I'm often looking for: um, is a a physical object that can encapsulate um, a moment or an idea. Besides cinema, besides cars, what else inspires you in your art? I mean, I travel a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm often looking at ways that people interpret the world around them in different cultures. Um, we we have these kind of mini subcultures in different places. Um, you know, just thinking about Porsche, I love, uh, you know, in Japan, they've got um, Akira Nakai, who does these really... <laughs> Wild RWB cars. Mm-hmm. It was my favorite. Um, my favorite automotive
0: designer ever. I am such a sucker for RWBs. Oh, sorry, I just had to say that. I'm such a big fan.
1: <laughs> He's. I, I was fortunate to go to his shop, um, which is about eh, two hours outside Tokyo. Um, I'm actually building a car with him now. No uh, way. Yeah, which is a. Can't say much about it because he wanted to keep it a little bit under wraps. But of it's a, It's a, a. A vehicle or a design variant that he has not touched yet. Um, in sort of porsche universe uh, so hopefully stay tuned he he's he's famously um, i mean if you've seen pictures of the guy he's like in his shop with no shoes on chain smoking cigarettes Only you know coca-cola cutting things <laughs> cutting things apart um no, no eye protection never exactly it's a, it's a wild experience and i can tell you from experience that is exactly what it looks and feels like in his shop
0: that's incredible because Growing up, I learned about Akira Nakai, like maybe like in what 2010ish, and I watched so many of those like build videos on YouTube, and I started noticing similarities after seeing like hundreds of these things. Like he's always got a leather chair in every shop. He's got like a pack of Marlboro Reds, a whole carton of them, uh, a case of Echo Mexico Coke, and no eye protection. What I love about his style too, freehands everything. Yeah, doesn't measure at all, just goes for it. It is just eyes it out. I yeah, this man is so good at what he does. Not one is alike, but they all are encapsulated by the same design ethos under him it's
1: unreal it's funny because you know when you think about other there's a lot of shops that do um you know aftermarket porsche things we can think about roof and singer and and all these different ones and i think that they are going for a a sort of more perfected Mm -hmm. version of what they think the factory could have done or Mm -hmm. may have done in those in those eras um they're upgrading the engines um they're they're changing suspension they're 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 altering design in some ways um he thinks about it i think more as a sculptor um which is why he doesn't care so much about functionality in some cases i went on a drive for him um for about an hour around uh his shop and in the area and it's kind of in it's a smaller city outside tokyo that has a lot of farms and things on it with these narrow roads and there was one point where we had to turn around um, you know normally would have been a three- point turn, but because the cars are dropped so low and the, ba- the, the uh, wheel wells are so wide it ends up being like a 20 point turn because <laughs> the turning radius on those RWB cars is like maybe 10 degrees cruise ship style <laughs> exactly exactly but you know the shape of those things is unmistakable and he's been able to create um, a real kind of universe. Um, which you know, for me as a sculptor, it's fascinating to see how people reinterpret these uh, vehicles. I mean, yeah, he's built he builds them all over the world. I
0: just love seeing like on Twitter, like on YouTube, it's like we got RWB Norway number one, we got RWB Guatemala number one, yeah. RWB Russia number six. It's just more. Like the more I see, the more I see a new interpretation of what he does. Like whenever I was telling you this about earlier, whenever Daniel Arsham draws, I was like, oh, what's it going to be this time? It's just always a new fun thing to look forward to. The anticipation, the hype. I, yeah, I'm such an ad, an admiration of Kyrnika. It's like, that's all I got to <laughs> say. I'm such a, I'm such a fanboy.
2: So you said your first car was Saab. Saab, Saab. 900 Turbo. Turbo. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: What happened to that car? Do you regret letting it go? I, 1,000%. I've actually been on Bring a Trailer all the time trying to find a, <laughs> another one. Because um, when you came and visited us last time, we actually had one in the shop. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like that That car, it had all of these very quirky things about it. I don't know if you remember how the, the engine bay opens. Oh, yeah. How it's like a, in from the yeah, top. It looks kind of like a, like a, I don't know, like a F-16 or something like that, you yeah. know, uh, fighter plane. Um, I feel like that car is a very artist-architect car for some reason. Yeah, I think there was like all these de- quirky design things. You know, it's like when you think about the way that um, automobile designers, when they look at things like the graphic design of the gauges and things like that, yeah. I think in a lot of cases, it's probably an afterthought. They're mm-hmm. thinking more about body shape and performance and all of this. And you look at the way that Saab did those designs it's like all the kerning on the font is perfect Mm -hmm. and it was little things like that you know um porsche's got the the key on the left hand side saab had it in the center Center console console. right um which is you know if you ever loan somebody that car then you can never (laughs) figure out where the keyhole is
0: i'll never forget the first time i was given a porsche and i couldn't find how to turn the (laughs) (laughs) car i was very embarrassed and realized, oh wait i work for porsche right now I should be fired. It's on the left. It's on the left, and it was a hot day, and I was cooking in that car, like freaking out. I was like, "What do I do?" You know why the you know why it's on the left? Yeah, actually, I learned about that after I googled it in the car. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, it's because when they used to charge across the r- across the starting line at Le Mans, you can save fractions of a second by having it in the left hand already. So you it key goes directly in, fires up first away. That's it. So, what would
2: you say was the major turning point in your career where art? was more than
1: just a hobby? I mean, I've always um, been fascinated with drawing and painting, and I studied um, design in high school. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going to a school in New York called Cooper Union, which uh, is unique in the kind of, at least in the United States, the the way that they teach art, in that there's no specific major. So I was able to take classes in sculpture and printmaking, photography, and film Um, And it kind of allowed me to think about the way of making an art practice more about idea than about material or technique. Uh, So my work has often varied between all of these different uh, mediums. When I finished school, I was fortunate to meet um, a gallerist, uh, Emmanuel Perretin, who had a space in Paris, um, who I continue to work with uh, to this day, and started exhibiting um, some early paintings and drawings with him. Um, this is actually the 20th anniversary of that first exhibition.
0: 20 years. Mm-hmm. 20 years. Congratulations! Yeah. That's yeah. awesome.
1: Thank you. <laughs>
0: what was in that first exhibit?
1: It was mostly drawings. You know, in school, uh, I did move around a lot, but my primary focus was in painting. And when I finished school, you know having a studio big enough to make sculpture, um, sometimes it's really expensive to make sculpture, you need more materials. Drawing and painting is still the thing that, it's kind of the easiest way for me to articulate an idea. Um, I still draw, you know, every day when I'm in the studio. And um, it wasn't until later that sculpture became a primary um, vehicle for uh, showcasing ideas. So
2: a lot of our listeners might not know that you're actually the creative director for the Cleveland Cavaliers. How did that happen?
1: So I'm, I was born in Cleveland, yep. right? Third generation Clevelander, mm-hmm. um, was a fan of the Cavs, obviously uh, followed very closely um, during the LeBron era and our 2016 championship. Um, the family that owns the team, the Gilbert family, uh, originally from Detroit, also huge automotive uh, culture, obviously there, and after the championship they they renovated the arena and so they commissioned a number of artists to make works in the new space and i made this work which is a basketball that looks like it has been kind of caught in a wall and it's pulling the wall along with it so it looks like it's kind of stretching the wall and it became a fan favorite and there was pictures of it everywhere and they used it in advertisements and all of these things and um you know i started talking with uh grant gilbert who's um dan's son just about things that i would like to see with the team so can you please do some different jerseys for next season <laughs> you know like this colorway is off the city and he connects man every time d- d- you know. did you come already prepared did you ha- no, have some sketches know it, it was more or? like grant we, we got to do something about these jerseys you know and he was like well you know you should come in and advise us and The conversation kept going. And at some point, he's like, What if you actually did come and advise us? And you, you know, that sort of thing hadn't ever really been done. Um, Not that design was an afterthought in the league, but it was always done with an internal team, Mm -hmm. often, you know, amazingly talented people, but people that were very sports uh, marketing focused, right? And so as basketball becomes sort of wider. Um, as, as a cultural influence uh, in the U.S. and, and globally, mm-hmm. um, we had this idea, you know, what if an artist took over the full creative direction of the team? So he proposed it. We went through this, you know, two-year thing with the, with the league because the NBA didn't really understand how to implement this, right? Oh, um, the league got involved. I just thought this would be strictly organizational. I know. No, the league gets involved in everything. Mm. What did you um, think of that? Um, you know, I think that when we think about the league, it's they, the way that they manage um, all these things. That's why the draft works. That's why you know, there's all these salary caps, all of those things. Um, it functions quite well, and it allows all the teams to have kind of like an even playing field, I guess, right? Um, so once I was appointed, we actually saw the league turn around and say, this might actually be interesting. So we've seen you know, Big Sean was appointed creative director of the Pistons. Um, Don C was appointed creative director of the Chicago Bulls. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones coming and it kind of makes sense to have, you know, somebody who understands both basketball and wider kind of cultural impact of, um, you know, I, I described when I had one of my initial meetings, um, with the team and the league walking around Tokyo and, you know, seeing kids wearing, you know, LA Lakers jerseys. Mm-hmm. That's and, right, baby. <laughs> 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 and uh, you know, they have no idea who's on the team, what's going on in basketball. They, it's more about the the cultural idea of what basketball represents, mm-hmm. and I think that's a really interesting area to play. So, fortunately, our team has been. Playing very well this season. Yeah, I've really beat the Lakers a couple times already. I I, I don't want to talk
0: about it. I I don't want to talk about the Lakers right now, man. Every time I turn the TV on, all I just get is constant pain and a reminder that we're the Lakers right now. (laughs) Yeah,
2: it's definitely. I haven't watched any uh, games this season. It's just I I envy you, especially when you grew up in the heyday. You know, with Shaq and Kobe, it's kind of hard to watch now. Just, just, I know it's different eras and everything, but different style of
1: game. I mean, you know, the Cavs, um, there was a, a championship drought in Cleveland for like 50 years. Um, and, you know, for me, it's like I'll go to a basketball game even if my team's not playing. I just love the sport. It's There's, there's something so beautiful and kind of acrobatic and mm-hmm. um, like poetic about uh, basketball. It's probably the... You know, for me, one of the most enjoyable sports to watch live. Are there any other sports you enjoy? Um, or I, auto racing? Or I anything? do like F1. R- uh, right answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both uh, F1s fans as well. So, yeah, you know, it's it's like just crazy how much the sport has gained, you know, prominence in the US um, over the last couple of years, primarily due to this um, Netflix show. But I was fortunate last year. Um, I met Lewis Hamilton probably eight or nine years ago. Um, you know, he pays a lot of attention to things outside, uh, you know, sports and, oh, yeah. and racing. Um, very involved in the fashion world and and in art. And so I met him in passing. We became friends, and we started talking about some sort of collaboration. This was before COVID, and um, finally came to fruition last uh, last year. So I I designed his helmet, um, which he wore during Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, and it was this kind of amazing story because you know the the graphics that are on the helmet. There's tons of different advertisements and all these things. And when I designed the helmet, it was meant to look like this purple calcite, you know, object like a sculpture. And I had whited out all of the um, the brand sponsors, so they were all there, but they were in they were all tonal, yeah. right, tone on tone. And somebody from his team calls me and they're like, you know, the, the sponsors are not going to accept this. It's like, and so they ended up getting, um, Lewis was like, I'll just call them and ask them. So he ended up calling every brand sponsor. Can you imagine like, Lewis calls you on your cell phone I don't know. You're the head of uh, Monster Energy, or you know, yeah. one of those Hugo Boss. Just. And uh, what are you going to say to him? Like, no, we're no, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to do it. It's one race. So they ended up doing it. In for- the the helmet actually looked really unique because of that. Um, that was a really special project, and we ended. I ended up actually making five sculptural versions of the helmet, um, which were sold at an event in Monaco to benefit uh, Lewis's charity. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So did he have any input at all,
2: or you had created? Oh, yeah. Created, okay, yeah. <laughs> so it was a, I'd imagine he's, two-man team, yeah. he's
1: very specific about okay. about everything. I'd imagine so. the purple had a lot to do with him because
0: it's kind of his color.
1: The purple, yeah, so we, we looked at different materials and he was obviously you know um, all about the purple. It's, it's a color that he had used um, in his livery uh, in the past. And um, the, the amethyst material that I use in my own work is very similar to that, so we ended up going with that. I sent him a couple different designs. We did this really beautiful thing on the surface um, texture of the helmet where most of it looks matte, but in the areas where the crystal are, they did a clear UV overlay Mm. so that as it's moving through, they kind of shine off the light. Um, The the helmet is actually on view now in my exhibition uh, here in California at the Orange County Museum. Um, So that show includes sculpture and painting and all of the collaborative works that I've done with Porsche and Dior, um, as well as a number of different helmets, uh, one of them, uh, the, the Lewis Hamilton helmet. Today, what's your favorite
2: collaboration
0: you've done? If you're allowed to say, you know, like they might be listening like, hmm, or which one
1: was the funnest
2: to, to work on?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're all very different. Um, one of the fortunate things for me in, in collaborating with people is I get to work with all of these just incredible creatives and people who can do things that are so far outside of my understanding. You know, being in the pit with Lewis and just having him talk about strategy and like, you know, he let me sit in the vehicle. It's like this is So cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But just, you know, being able to be around these kind of incredible talents, um, learn from them, learn the way that they think about um, their own craft. And, you know, I would say just from the child perspective of like, oh, this is a magical thing, um, being able to work with Porsche directly, being able to work with their designers. um, I'm working on a new project with them now, which is a reinterpretation um, of the 928. Mm. uh, That's a, I've redesigned the body of the car, um, redesigned the interior. We're actually gonna be premiering this vehicle at uh, South by Southwest in a couple of weeks. And, you know, when you're thinking about aerodynamics and lighting and all of those things, I have no expertise in that, right? So I have to rely on um, all these, you know, incredible engineers and talents outside of my universe. Um, But I'm able to bring some of that knowledge and, you know, ways of making back into my own practice.
0: Yeah, speaking of working with Porsche, I I believe you have a permanent installation at their museum in Stuka, right?
1: I do. So um, this was. Uh 2017, I created a... This was actually the first vehicle sculpture that I made. That was a functional drivable uh, vehicle, um, which was an eroded 992. And it was... They gave me the car before the 992 was actually released to the public.
0: I was about to say, you said 2017. It came out in 2019.
1: Exactly. So this was the first... Um, yeah, it was the first 992 that was delivered in the United States. And uh, it was actually the car that had been used in Bad Boys. You know, they... Oh, yeah, it's that car. It's the actual vehicle. Like it was a, the one it the was a stunt vehicle. That's awesome. Yeah. So oh. I think they had a couple of them. They knew I was gonna disassemble it and cast parts and everything. Right. So it kind of didn't matter that it had a couple of scratches on it from, from the filming. And that car was shown uh, in Selfridges in London, um, which was on the corner of you know, this street that gets tens of thousands of people every day. So it, it was heavily photographed. And, um, you know, we decided after that that it would enter the the Porsche Museum collection. And it's it's on permanent display there. Actually, I think they've shipped it out a couple different times. So it was in Singapore about a month ago for, for a show there. And uh, it always draws, you know, a lot of attention because it looks like something that, you know, mm. Porsche would never do. It's like a eroded... A vehicle, something
0: very different from their usual. I think that's why people like it because yeah. Porsche just starting to embrace the uniqueness of their owners and seeing what they can possibly do. And right, like, yeah, like all their social feeds, for example, have just been user-created content, and they're really giving the love to their customers and their fans. And
1: yeah, it's really smart It is, and, yeah. and interesting. Also, as somebody who has been such a fan of the brand, um, just to see how many um, different variants and what people are doing with them. So, how do you want to be remembered as an artist? Oof. I mean, I got a couple years to, to, to think about <laughs> in, in that, hundred, I think. In, yeah. a, in a hundred years. In a hundred years. I mean, you're, you're all about time. Yeah. I mean, I, I have had these kind of interesting conversations with, um, with journalists over the years about the creation of objects that look like, you know, archaeological objects from this era. Um, things that are part of our everyday experience. And also sometimes part of like a a wider cultural, uh, I don't know, icon, Mm -hmm. like Pokemon, for instance. What's your
0: favorite Pokemon, by the way?
1: When I did, so I did a big project with Pokemon and I had actually had to choose one for this animation that we did. And so I picked Cubone. That's a good choice.
0: I'm more of a Gengar guy myself. Yeah, I like
1: Gengar. Did did you make a Gengar? I did make a Gengar. That's awesome. Yeah, that's
0: favorite Pokemon of all time. (laughs) Um, I had to ask.
1: But I think in the future, um, the works that I've created—they they mark a moment in time, right? And um, it's really going to confuse archaeologists in the future to see these objects that they they were meant to be something futuristic in the era, um, and that's part of their um, that's part of their power. The, the sculptures is that they they sort of float in time. We don't really know when they're from. So
2: you kind of touched on it in the beginning, but. I'm sure the Peterson wasn't the first choice or maybe it was the first choice for this exhibit. So why did you pick the Peterson?
1: What what spoke to you? You know, I've done hundreds of exhibitions during the last um, 20 years. Some of them were group exhibitions in museums. And I find that showcasing sculpture and artwork in places that people don't necessarily anticipate seeing them part of the reason why I do collaborations with brands is that I'm bringing artwork into these areas of people's lives that um, they're not looking for it. It's a so, new audience. Yeah, it's a new audience. Mm-hmm. And I think the audience of the Peterson, for sure, it overlaps with an art audience. I mean, mm-hmm. we have LACMAs, you know, right across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, but it creates a different context with the vehicles that are already here, which are drivable cars. Um, and I think adds to this kind of conversation about what is automotive design right it's a it's a sculptural kind of art form um but it's also practical and the vehicles that i've made once we strip away their function once they're not drivable what are you know what are they then and so yeah i think the peterson's a great um environment and uh look forward to seeing We're glad response. you're here thank we you we're
0: very glad you're here But uh, it looks like we are actually out of time. So
2: yeah, um, just for our viewers uh, that want to know more about you and
1: um, where can they find you? I mean, the best place, honestly, to follow along is on my Instagram account, which is just Daniel Arsham.
0: Perfect. Yeah, awesome. And yeah, please check out the new Arsham Automotive Exhibition now open. Mr. Arsham, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fantastic conversation. We hope to see you again soon. Of course.